Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they What an excellent day for an exorcism. You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I were still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. Who's in the box? Put the gun down, baby. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the box? Wolves have a territorial range of about 300 miles, and they kill range of 30. If we're close to their dam, and if we're within that radius, then they'll come after us. How can we tell if we're close? They can't. What in God's name are you talking about? Yes, sir, Mr. Thornton. The son of the devil. He must die, Mr. Thorne! You do not want to go that way. What's that way? Officer, sir. You do not want to go that way. We're going to the mall. Hello, Dexter Morgan. Hello, welcome once again to Halloween Boutique Psychotronics Reviews, Volume 7. Unlike last episode where I kept on calling it Volume 5, this time I made sure that I have the right number. This is actually Volume 7, even though last episode I kept on saying Volume 5, it was actually Volume 6. And this here is Volume 7 of Psychotronic Reviews or if you like Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Uh, the couple things here I wanted to bring up. Um, I got some feedback on the new um, way I set up Episode 6 and uh, how it wasn't as in-depth about behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, and this was from uh, Paul Hewson. Uh, Paul said, Hi, Phil. I just listened. Great job. You really find great gems. How do you decide on what to watch? I like the new format. Thank you very much to Paul Hewson, which actually is a great segue to uh, my other responder or emailer, uh, David Koning, who stated, uh, don't change the format. I love the original format. Uh, keep it up. Good job. Um, and so uh, what I've done is uh, mix and match. So have a lot more detail on the film and if it's any good, as well as still keeping some of the uh, behind the scenes and who the filmmakers and the actresses and actors are and all that, screenwriters and so forth. Um, but which, like I stated, is a good segue to uh, David Koning uh, because uh, I actually wrote um, some answers to questions he had for his uh, fanzine that he writes that he brought to uh, conventions and whatnot. And um, one of the questions he asked in that fanzine was uh, the following, and here is the question. It is, how do you decide the Blu-rays to talk about on Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews? And uh, this is the answer that I had that's actually in his fanzine uh, magazine, and I wrote the following. Technically, I discuss more than Blu-rays because some films, especially the shot on video or those films that have the, had their master prints lost to history, may actually only have a DVD release given that an HD scan wouldn't be any improvement. Yet how I determine what to review is fairly unsystematic. The curious thing about boutique labels and the discs they release is that in many cases they do not own the rights to the films and instead are only leasing the rights. As a result, they have 
a deal in place where they get to print out anywhere between a thousand to three thousand copies so in many cases I will purchase new releases immediately so not to miss out on a new transfer that will soon be out of print but that doesn't necessarily determine what I will review many times I will review a film because of the genre or subgenre itself if I happen to be interested in watching a murder mystery I will pull a few off the shelf and then pick the one that most pleases my fancy at the moment Many of the films I review are actually not necessarily new releases. Prior to the creation of this podcast, I would watch some of these films and honestly had nowhere to talk about them. During the Dark Discussions podcast, we have a segment where we discuss what we've been watching, but it is short and I felt as if I wasn't able to give the attention I wanted to for these movies. Now I can, but I do try to vary it up a bit. To be honest, watching horror continuously or grindhouse films back to back to back or any other subgenre back-to-back can get very tiring and even at times feel like a chore. If I don't vary it up, I will feel drained of any enjoyment. So one perfect example of a mix that I did was episode 4 of this podcast. This episode I reviewed a faux exploitation film, a shot on video foreign film, a brand new remastered release by Vinegar Syndrome, a cult classic, and an 80s thriller that had been marketed as a teen sex comedy. With that diversity of midnight movie viewing, I feel that I can focus on each film both during viewing and reviewing without feeling like I'm not giving the necessary attention that these films deserve. Uh, the main thing, uh, now uh, that's the end of the, the um, writing, so now back. Uh, the main thing is that the films are usually uh, midnight movies. It uh, doesn't matter what subgenre of midnight movie. They can be horror, sci-fi, thriller, techno-thriller, mystery, grindhouse, midnight movie, whatever. Uh, even art house and foreign films. And uh, it's really just to mix them up uh, so I don't get drained. Um, so that's that's the main thing. And uh, that's really how uh, I come up with the, the films to review. And uh, this episode here is actually um, a very eclectic one as well. Um, one of the films is a 2012 uh, film that is a throwback grindhouse film, and I'm reviewing that. Uh, I'm reviewing another anime series, uh, so I think it was a 12 or 13 a half hour episode series that is a science fiction. Uh, I am reviewing a film that has been marketed as a erotic or psychological thriller, but is actually really a police procedural and that one's 19 years old. I'm also reviewing a late 1980s slasher, so a horror film. And uh, the last film is a late 1970s mashup of serial killer slash alien monster uh, horror sci-fi film. Uh, so th this is a definitely a mixed uh, episode of uh, various genres. Um, and I believe every one of these is actually a um, from a different boutique label. So uh, all from different companies, each movie that I'm reviewing. So this episode is similar to the prior ones, focusing on a mix match of midnight movies. Um, now, to reach me, you can reach me at dark discussions at AOL.com and uh, would love to hear more emails 
the emails have faded out a little bit obviously for the fact that um, there's been larger gaps between the episodes um, at, at one point I was doing uh, the Game of Thrones episodes uh, you know nothing Jon Snow a Game of Thrones and that episode or I should say that podcast is now obviously in hiatus which gives me more focus back to this podcast here also you can find me on Dark Discussions podcast where myself and four other co-hosts review and critique a, a horror or a genre film and talk about everything from the box office to the symbolism to uh, the people behind the scenes to the story itself and our opinions on it. Uh, for example, some recent uh, episodes have been as eclectic as Alien Covenant all the way to the Polish language horror musical film The Lore, which actually just got a Criterion Collection release. And had I not reviewed that on Dark Discussions podcast, would be a perfect film for this podcast here. Um, now, uh, other things you can do is go to darkdiscussions.com, where you can find all the podcasts under the Dark Discussions label, which includes this one here, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. All of the podcasts have large icons on the webpage that lead you right to all the episodes. And uh, you can find us on uh, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, as well as uh, the Facebook group, Dark Discussions Podcast. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Dark Discussion one And uh, that's pretty much it. But definitely send some emails. Uh, also, if you have suggestions of films that you would like to uh, hear about, anything as obscure as some of the films I'm going to review today, as well as more prominent releases that may, say, be on a Scream Factory disc. Uh, but either way, uh, let's get into the reviews, and uh, we'll be back at the end to wrap it up. Vinegar Syndrome. One of the better boutique labels out there, one could say. All their discs are fairly loaded. Uh, the quality of the pictures are generally fantastic. And a good percentage of the films they choose to release are top-notch. Or at least considered films that would be um, sleeper or something of that nature. Um, the film I'm going to uh, talk about right now is a Vinegar Syndrome film. And this one is called... Slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse is an uh, interesting film in the sense that I bought it late, uh, so a few months or maybe even actually a year after it was released by Vinegar Syndrome on disc. But I decided to uh, just throw it on the pile and not bother watching it for some time because I kept on reading that it was a horror film with a lot of comedic elements to it and um, it's not necessarily something I would want to check. I do like horror comedy. Uh, I'm actually uh, reviewing a film called The Disco Exorcist on this episode and that is a horror comedy and that's a solid film. But based off of how the film looks, it appears that it's not a horror comedy and yet everywhere I've read it's, they state it's a horror comedy. 
But I decided to finally take a look at this film, Slaughterhouse, and see the truth. Because it had been on my power for a bit, and I wanted something um, that was, I guess, an 80s slasher that may or may not be a little more lighthearted. Now, before I talk about the film itself, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, I wanted to bring up a little bit. Because when Vinegar Syndrome releases their films, and they usually release about five a month, um, they, they come up every so often with a gem. And when I say a gem, I mean a solid, essential horror film that you should own or you should see. Even if it's not a cult classic like Halloween or Friday the 13th. This film here, Slaughterhouse, could be one of those films. And let me explain what happens here. For example, uh, Vinegar Syndrome has released films like Luth the Geek, Pigs, Psycho Cop Returns, and this film here. And out of those four films, those four were films that I had no expectations on and was overwhelmed. And uh, Slaughterhouse is the latest example of a film like that. Another one would be Raw Force. Uh, so they, they just grab these films, they release them, and then it's like, whoa, how did I never hear of this great 1980s horror film? Don't know why. But Slaughterhouse is a great 1980s horror film, and everyone should see it. Now, basically what the story's about, before I give my own personal um, synopsis, I'll read the back of the jacket. And uh, this is what it has to say. Lester Bacon's slaughterhouse has run into financial problems. Faced with the town lawyer, the sheriff, and the rival slaughterhouse owner trying to purchase his land, Lester decides to take matters into his own hands. After discovering the type of violence his hulking and mentally deranged son, Buddy, is capable of, Lester orders him to permanently dispose of anyone who conspires against him. A late 1980s video store staple, Rick Lossler's Slaughterhouse, is a gleefully bloody San Diego shot slasher featuring atmospheric and noirish cinematography along with a generous helping of creative kills. Vinegar Syndrome proudly presents Slaughterhouse in its North American Blu-ray debut, newly restored in 2K from its 35mm interpositive and featuring the original ultra stereo sound mix for the first time on video. Alright, so um, my synopsis is basically uh, there's this pig farmer that uh, can't afford his land anymore. Uh, he's let the place go downhill uh, so he's not even producing anything even though He's quote-unquote a pig farmer. And this other pig farmer wants to buy him out. And he keeps on saying no. So he hires this lawyer. And he hires, uh, and he gets the sheriff involved. And basically what he's going to do is he's going to buy the land and the farm. So give this guy a lot of money. And keep him on as the head of of this quote-unquote new 
pig farm that he's a conglomerate that he's going to make. So this is a great deal. However, this this guy that owns this land, this this uh, jerk, says no, and um, the thing is, is he's going to lose the the place to the bank anyway. So this is a chance that everybody wins, but he's a jerk, and it's his own fault personally, in my opinion. So what happens is, is his son, or his remaining son, because his wife and uh, I believe an older son had passed, um, maybe in, in a, a uh, pig farming accident, to be honest, because, uh, you know, they make sausages and, and whatever. Um, as stated in the back jacket, is a little off, uh, has some issues, probably should be in... Uh, a home for the, the mentally challenged, actually, because um, he chose violent behavior. Group of kids, you guessed it, go and party in one of the warehouses that is in disarray, not used anymore, that is on the property. Something bad happens. The pig farmer finds out about it, sees that his son is capable of not just violence but murder and he decides to get revenge on what he considers uh, the injustices that have happened upon him and his farm over the years and so that's your story um, oddly uh, the director was trying to make a statement uh, at least this is from his words because uh, the extras are fantastic on this disc uh, he does a commentary, he does interviews, on, uh, on camera interviews and whatever. And he talks about how the film was made, what he was trying to say, how he, how he cast the film. And then they even interview uh, the lead actress and how she was fascinated with the role and glad she got it because it was a leading role and she had lost roles before and whatnot. And, and so this was, this was a great thing. She, she, I mean, everybody involved with this film is delighted with this film. This isn't a film that they're like ashamed of. Uh, so that that was kind of cool. But either way, the director, which is also uh, you know obviously wrote wrote the film, he actually uh, was trying to make a commentary on, I guess, banks and the government and injustice and and how folks lose their property from big conglomerates and whatnot. Uh, my opinion, it doesn't work because it, it really, the, the character that is losing his farm is so despicable and so in the wrong that, especially when he's basically given money for the property and is given the, I guess, the, the general manager of this new conglomerate under uh, the pig farmer that's planning to buy him out. Um, I mean, his pride may be hurt, but again, it's his own fault and so forth. So it doesn't work, but that's not a problem because this film is great. And when this farmer and his son go crazy, um, you can't but feel sorry for the victims. And I think that's a good thing because a lot of horror films you you know their body counts and you're just waiting for the victims to die which is fine because that's what a horror film is especially a slasher this one actually has you empathize whether it was intentional or not 
with the victims. So that, in my feeling, made the film more suspenseful because you actually liked all the characters, not including the pig farmer and his deranged son. So when the time came to pass, you actually felt fear and uh, anger and sadness when uh, bad things happened to them. Uh, some of the killings in the film are pretty damn impressive, um, if, if that's your thing. So um, for a slasher, it works really good. Now, the deranged son, his character, a uh, really interesting uh, character. Um, he's one of those characters that seems harmless at first, but he's a hulking, brooding, big guy. And so you could see uh, if something bad happens, he could snap. Uh, it, his character actually reminded me of a twisted and evil version of uh, the mentally uh, disabled giant from Of Mice and Men. So think of that if you're familiar with that material uh, by John Steinbeck. Uh, but this guy is really twisted because um, he's actually in glee when he, when he does what he does. Um, now, uh, behind the scenes, the director talked about how this guy came in for the role and the problem was he was short. He was like five, six or something. And this guy's supposed to be hulking huge. Uh, but generally he is. He's a, he's a big, he's, he's like a, looks like a, uh, one of those Mexican wrestlers, uh, the ones that wear the mask. So barrel-chested, uh, wide shoulders and whatnot. But the problem is he's only 5'5". Five five. So um, the director and the producer, because they introduce, introduce the producer and then interview him, uh, talk all about how they filmed certain ways to make this guy look like he was 6'5 or 6'8 rather than his actual 5'5. Five five. And uh, so you learn a lot about the tricks of the trade, uh, casting, and so forth, but also a lot about the film itself and what it was about and how it was made and uh, what the story represents. Um, so I would highly recommend this film because it is a solid film that unfortunately probably isn't well known because it was a late addition to the slasher craze. It was from the 1980s late, like 1988 I believe. So if it had come out say in 1982 or 83, it probably would be a well-known cult film. If, obviously not to the extent of say Friday the 13th or Halloween, but it would still probably be one of the more well-known slasher films had it been an early addition to the slasher craze rather than at the tail end of the slasher film craze when uh, slashers were falling out of vogue. Uh, so it unfortunately um, caused, uh, it, I guess, its, it's notoriety to be not as uh, well known as, say, some others. Um, the producer and the director also talk about how uh, they wish they had done a lot more films because uh, they had a lot of talent here. But they talk about uh, the problems of, of finding money 
and getting around um, you know laws and union stuff and all that and how all that stuff hinders filmmakers and therefore um, you know they didn't get to do more than they wanted also uh, the director talks about how uh, he was offered to continue but he was so drained working on this film that he decided to take a break you know like a year off and by that time he had gotten a job elsewhere and whatever and he never went back necessarily um, and he, he says if he could do it all over he would have just sucked it up and just jumped right on to the next picture and not taking that break um, because uh, you know you, you figure even though you're drained once you do it once you now know all the things that you can avoid to do it the second time so he could have gone and done another film avoiding all those things that drained him as a person because he would already been experienced uh, but you know that's time you know you, you you live and you learn you live and you regret uh, but I gotta say um, this film here a solid addition to horror films in the 1980s and definitely one of the better slasher films uh, I, I felt anyway I feel for sure uh, now let me read some of the special uh, features on the disc uh, it includes the following uh, newly scanned restored in 2k from the 35 millimeter interpositive commentary track with director Rick Rossler producer Jerry Enco and production designer Michael Scaglione. New video interview with lead actress Sherry Bandorf Lee. Making a low budget indie. Featurette with Rick Rostler, the director. Producing Slaughterhouse. Interview with the producer Jerry Enco. Archival interviews with Rick Rostler and Jerry Enco from 1990, uh, the DVD release, which actually uh, is interesting because a lot of things they say there uh, do appear or are repeated in their more uh, recent, re recent interviews that are for specific for this Vinegar Syndrome release. Uh, re radio interview featurette from 1987. Local news coverage from the premiere. Behind the scenes featurette outtakes. No smoking, slaughterhouse snipe, whatever that means. Uh, multiple theatrical trailers, TV, radio spots, shooting script, gallery, reversible cover artwork, and with English uh, for the hearing impaired subtitles. Um, now, uh, other things I learned, I think, was that these guys came from the Midwest, uh, maybe Wisconsin or Minnesota or something, I forget, and they needed to find a, f a place to film, and, and the reason they landed up in San Diego outskirts is specifically for the fact that there was this abandoned uh, pig farm and so forth. Uh, then they show um, some working pig farm stuff during the credits, that I believe they actually filmed in Oregon or Washington State um, and uh, went up there on a working pig farm. So uh, um, all filmed on location uh, at, and so forth. And uh, they stated that uh, the town that they filmed in, which is just outside of the San Diego, uh, California area, um, were, were gracious and uh, helpful t uh, and were not hindering to the production of the film. If anything, they, they were glad that Slaughterhouse was there to film in their town. Um, now, uh, I, w I would state that 
if you wanted to see this film, I, I don't know about VOD rental or anything like that, but for disc, um, you can find this pretty much you know, anywhere you want, online anyway, where you could f buy uh, film. And um, f a couple of things. Uh, VinegarSyndrome.com sells it, obviously, and they continue to sell it. Uh, they do have uh, deals every so often, like they do have a Black Friday sale, um, and they usually have like a Halloween sale, and they, I think they may have a, a mid-year sale, and so forth. Um, so you can always find it there. But you can also uh, buy it uh, for twenty-one nineteen at the moment uh, from like Amazon for the Blu-ray and the DVD. You can find it for twelve ninety-nine. Um, not sure the difference of the quality. I have actually the the Blu-ray itself. Um, the DVD doesn't look like it's actually the Vinegar Syndrome version, so you probably may want to avoid that. Um, I would go straight for the Blu-ray, uh, and that's the way to, to view it. Um, and it's, it's definitely worth it, because you, if you're a filmmaker, or a, you know, a young filmmaker or someone that wants to learn film, uh, this one has a lot of great extras, um, and the director talks about it, and... Uh, the lead actress, she talks about it and stuff. So uh, alone, the extras are fantastic for this release. Uh, but if you're a horror fan, this film is great. And this is the definitive edition or release of the film where you will never see it in better quality than here on the Vinegar Syndrome release of Slaughterhouse. High recommend. The film I'm going to review right now is actually a 2011 film, and it was uh, done by a bunch of folks in Rhode Island, uh, but did get a major release through uh, video, DVD, and Blu-ray. Uh, the film is actually called The Disco Exorcist. Now, this film actually uh, got rave reviews when it first came out. Uh, first off, it was considered by Fangoria Magazine as the film of the month when it first came out. Uh, basically, when Fangoria Magazine was still publishing a hard copy of the magazine, they would give a release of all the films that were released um, straight to VOD or films from the past that were put on Blu-ray or DVD or whatever from boutique labels and so forth, and then uh, rate them. Uh, zero to four or zero to five stars and then they would have their pick of the month and uh, the disco exorcist was uh, the film that they felt was the best of the best that month and uh, I remember it clearly when it came out and there was actually some pretty good slashes in 1980s and 70s films that were re-released that same month on disc and they still stated that the Disco Exorcist was the best that month. And uh, by the end of the year, it was listed as one of their better films of the year for genre. Um, the film Disco Exorcist is a film that is actually what we would call a grindhouse throwback. Uh, so this film originated directly from what we saw when um, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez 
released uh, the film Grindhouse. Uh, and then we had all those films that started falling, such as uh, Hobo with a Shotgun and Run, Bitch, Run and all the rest of them. Uh, this, this was definitely one of those films that hit it big time um, on the coattails of uh, the Tarantino Rodriguez film Grindhouse. Uh, the film is directed by a guy named Richard Griffin. Uh, Richard Griffin is a fairly well-known cult director. Uh, maybe one day he will actually make it big in Hollywood, but at this time he's still doing uh, independent films. Jason Lloyd of Horror Failure and My Buddy Bits rates him as one of the greatest talents of the past 10 years in independent cinema, and I would have to concur. Um, I've seen a couple of his films, actually I've seen three of his films, uh, besides The Disco Exorcist, uh, but some of his films of note that uh, folks may know or um, at least heard of in passing are things like Exhumed, uh, Murder University, The Sins of Dracula, and so forth. Uh, his IMDb shows a number of projects, uh, including films that are shorts, but uh, he's done a number of motion pictures full length, and uh, uh, the, this one here, Disco Exorcist, is one of his standouts. Um, I, I have to say that Murder University was uh, actually a pretty damn good film as well that I saw by him. Uh, the film is written by a guy named Tony Noons. Uh, he's, uh, I believe, out of Rhode Island as well. And um, it is co-written, or I should say revisions, were actually by someone of, of very much interest to the horror community. Uh, Ted Gagan, uh, he actually did revisions to the script uh, after it was written, and he has a co-writing um, on, on, on it, at least through IMDb. Uh, and for folks who don't know who Ted Gagan is, uh, he is the man who directed uh, the cult horror modern classic, and that would be called We Are Still Here. So we do definitely have a uh, big, quote-unquote, bigger name behind part of the script. Uh, the film stars uh, a pretty uh, eclectic cast of folk, but uh, there's three folks of, of uh, importance, uh, the three leads. Uh, Ruth Sullivan, uh, she is one of the lead actresses. Sarah Nicklin is the other. And then the lead, who is the disco exorcist, is Michael Reed. Um, now, what 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 uh, is this film about? Well, before I get into the film and what it's about, uh, just to let you know that it is definitely um, trying to get that throwback grindhouse feel that I mentioned. Um, so you have speckles and you know the fake damage or or whatnot on on the film is added. So f film grain, white specks, uh, pops and crackles. Uh, in the audio track, it's all intentional to make the film feel as if it was uh, produced and released back in the t 1970s and just happens to be um, aged and old and whatnot. And so uh, it, it most certainly does feel that way, not just based off of how it looks and sounds, but also the story, because this type of uh, film obviously... Um, is well that's why they call it a throwback because it wouldn't be made today um or at least released 
to uh, theaters today like it would have have been in uh, the 1970s, 60s, and whatnot through um, places like 42nd Street and Times Square back when uh, those type of theaters were everywhere. Uh, now let me uh, read the back jacket uh, of this movie. This is what it says. Uh, the most talked about retro horror of the year from the makers of None of That comes this blood, boobs, and bell-bottom soaked tribute to classic sleaze. Rex Romansky is a 1970s disco swinger who loves and leaves the wrong woman, the wicked black magic priestess Rita Marie. Now it's up to Rex to stop Rita's rampage of revenge, murder, and destruction before she claims more lives and the soul of the woman he loves. Get down all the way to hell with this sexy, irreverent horror comedy. And uh, this, yeah, this is a um, horror comedy for sure. It's actually more than just a horror comedy. It's a throwback horror sexploitation film uh, because there is uh, a large number of scenes with um, nudity and uh, things of that nature. Uh, so it's definitely not a film for the young ones, uh, but it is an R-rated film or it would be R-rated or NC-17 at the worst. So in other words, um, if you can handle Game of Thrones, this film is not a problem for you. Uh, there is some um, violence, obviously. It's a horror film. Uh, exorcism film, obviously. So there's going to be um, supernatural, quote-unquote, horror and um, makeup effects and things of that nature. Uh, but let's get into the plot a little bit, just to my summation of it, rather than just the back jacket. So uh, we meet this guy named uh, Rex Romansky. Um, he's a playboy, you know, a hippie or, or bell-bottomed guy from the 70s. Uh, loves the disco scene and whatnot. So uh, he's, you know, has a numerous girlfriends and so forth. And then one day he's at the disco club that he goes to. And there's this woman there, Rita Marie, that uh, he starts dancing with. And she, you know, goes right for him. And uh, she's a pretty hot-looking woman. He starts dating her, whatnot. Um, and then um, what happens is there's another woman that appears and this woman is um, a adult film actress uh, she plays it on screen she's not in real life and she's hip and she catches the eye of Rex uh, her name is Amorina Jones and uh, you can gather what happens um, Rex decides that uh, yeah dating the the big uh, quote-unquote starlet is cool she's hip she's good-looking and uh, Rita Marie is put to the back burner and Rita Marie flips out now uh, the t this is uh, what we discover and we, we find out pretty early uh, actually the pre-credit scene uh, Rita Marie is actually a witch um, a voodoo priestess and all those things so uh, she goes ape crazy and guess what happens she is going to get her revenge a woman scorned and you know what happens then um, so throughout the film you know we meet all the various uh, side characters like the the DJ at the disco club 
some of Rex's friends, uh, his family, uh, folks at the adult film set that Emma Arena Jones works at, and so forth. Um, so uh, the reason it's called the Disco Exorcist, well, we have um, a possession that occurs, and Rex, um, by default, has to uh, save the day. And uh, there you go. So that's uh, pretty much the plot of the, the film. Uh, really, the, the main intention of the film is to give us an excellent um, horror, comedy, sexploitation, throwback, grindhouse, midnight movie film more than uh, anything else. So the plot is pretty basic. Um, the story is pretty basic. And basically throughout the film we do have various set pieces uh, that leads to the ultimate climax at the end which is this big um, uh, sex and drug party that happens at the disco club and all hell breaks loose uh, when the wrath of Rita the Witch uh, happens. Um, so yeah, that's the film. Now, uh, is it any good? Uh, would I recommend it? Uh, was Fangoria uh, using hyperbole when they gave it uh, such a great review in their magazine? I actually um, saw the film at a horror convention the year it came out uh, called Rock and Shock. Um, they were screening it there and when I had read that it was there and I had just read uh, the review maybe a month earlier uh, from Fangoria I decided to uh, check it out. I'm not really a, a convention movie watcher because I go there for um, the vendors and to meet um, people and whatnot. Uh, but in this case, I decided to, to check it out. And plus, you know, if you can see a free movie on the big screen for whatever amount of dollars, um, you know, I mean, put it this way, it's, it's included in the convention cost. Uh, so why not see it? Um, so, you know, $14 at the regular theater or $8, whatever you have to pay, you get to see it for free. And this is a type of film that you wouldn't get to see on the big screen otherwise because it's basically a straight to VOD film. Um, except for maybe a handful of uh, theaters locally where it was produced or, or released or whatnot. Um, yeah, this film is a really good film. Um, I've seen it three times. I just rewatched it uh, a week ago for specifically to review for this, this uh, episode. Um, and the reason I like it a lot is that it is very entertaining. Um, it's not boring at all in my opinion. I didn't feel there was any slow spots. Um, the acting is, is pretty solid um, and to do it with some comedy uh, that's pretty good because as we've always said that comedy is one of the hardest genres to make work without it being stupid. Um, here the script is written so well and the actors in the whatever number it takes that the editor had to use, he put together, they all put together a, a really good film. Um, so I would recommend this film most certainly. Um, again, I don't usually necessarily watch uh, a film, you know, three times in, in that many years, or what, what maybe since uh, six years. But um, 
I felt it solid enough uh, that every time I put it in, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, now, again, it's not for everybody, because, I mean, if you don't like old 1970s crazy films, this obviously isn't a film for you by any means. But if you're one of those folks that love midnight movies, uh, from the teacher to the pickup to um, uh, trip with the teacher to the babysitter to any of those type of films that were um, exploitation midnight movies back in the day, but with a little horror and a little comedy added in, uh, this this film fits the bill perfectly. Um, I have to say it's so realistic to the time period that if I showed this film to anybody without telling them the history of it, they would say, oh, yeah, this is a, a film from 1976 or something like that. Um, the music, the music is awesome in this film. Obviously, it's, it's quote-unquote disco, but it's very funk-sounding. Uh, so the soundtrack is really good. Uh, they got uh, really catchy tunes. Uh, like, for example, the opening credits has a great uh, song that goes through uh, the credits as, 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 you know, they flash forward through um, all the people involved with the film. Um, the, as I stated, the acting is great. The Rex Romansky character is really solid. Um, a great invention for... Uh, exploitation film and uh, the guy that plays them read uh, right on spot um, if you like these actors that are in this film a lot of them are in a number of uh, Richard Griffin uh, films so for example some of the cast from this film would be seen in films like Murder University or Exhumed or The Sins of Dracula and so forth so um, a lot, a lot of these actors, if, if you think they're solid here, you can see them in most of his other films as well. Because I do believe that they are regional actors from the Rhode Island area. Because this is where I believe these films are all uh, produced and then they're picked up by uh, mainstream boutique labels and released everywhere. Um, so, with all that stated... Um, this film is a solid film and definitely worth for you to check out. Now, where can you find this film? Um, well, you can find it on disc. Uh, there is uh, a DVD that's pretty cheap. Uh, you can find it for maybe, I don't know, uh, 10 bucks. At the, you know, 10 bucks average. You can probably find it for 7 when it's on sale. Um, but they do, oh, and it does have some extras, including a commentary track and all that. Um, but also you can buy it in Blu-ray format, which I think actually uh, makes the the picture quality even better than it is. And again, it's supposed to be faux old or faux uh, bro, bro, you know, uh, old grimy uh, tape that that has just been upgraded uh, to to disc. Uh, but all in all, um, the Blu-ray version of the the film is, is pretty damn good as well. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Blu-ray doesn't have any of the extras uh, simply for the fact that it's by um, uh, it's a BDR, I guess. Uh, but it does come with a really cool cover art um, and so forth. Uh, both the Blu-ray and the disc are by a company called Wild Eye Releasing. 
Um, and that's probably the reason why uh, the film didn't get as much note as, say, other films of its uh, ilk, because uh, even though Wild Eye Releasing is a pretty uh, prolific company, they are not one of the their uh, more, uh, I guess, uh, well-funded companies. And when I say well-funded, I mean they're more, um, re you know, re smaller compared to, say, you know, the screen factories and the arrows and whatnot. Or even um, for a newer film like this one, like IFC or companies like that that take films from festivals and release it, uh, they obviously, Wild Eye isn't as big as a company like IFC. And... And so, this film obviously just didn't get as much promotion. Uh, it's, it really came down to companies or, or magazines or, or whatnot like um, Fangoria to really, really uh, get this film noticed. And uh, that's the, the main thing that uh, at least puts it on the radar. Um, so, for the subgenre of horror, which is the faux grindhouse film, uh, this is one of the best. Um, I, I could see this as easily as a double feature with Hobo with a Shotgun. Um, have a couple of friends over, or a group of friends over, and do a double feature of the Disco Exorcist and Hobo with a Shotgun, and you got yourself a damn good film. Um, again, there's a, a lot of uh, adult situations and nudity in this film, so obviously... It's not for the kiddies, uh, but generally um, for high school and college age or older, uh, this film rocks uh, and again would be a great double feature with something like Hobo with a Shotgun. Uh, so I recommend uh, one of the um, better horror films of uh, the past few years, at least uh, in the, the faux grindhouse films. and. Um, definitely check it out. The film I am going to discuss right now is actually a film called Jaded. J-A-D-E-D. -E it is a film that was released in 1998. I don't know the history of the film or anything like that. Um, but uh, the reason it came to my attention was because of uh, a new film that came out on Netflix called Gerald's Game, based off of a Stephen King book. Um, but the film stars uh, Carla uh, Gugino, or I, I guess that's how you pronounce her name, and uh, since her appearance in that film, it brought her back to uh, my attention, and so I went back to do some research on some of her other films that she's done, I've uh, been somewhat of a fan of hers for a bit, um, and uh, with her performance in Gerald's Game, uh, which I've watched off and on, uh, pieces of it uh, the past month, um, brought me back to uh, checking out some of her films. And uh, this is one of her early films uh, from 1996, so we're talking, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm sorry, 1998, so we're talking um, almost 20 years ago. Uh, when she was in her 20s, and um, it uh, came to my attention, so I picked it up through uh, Amazon. I'm not sure if you can find it on VOD anywhere, uh, but 
you can uh, get the disc. The disc, it's only DVD format. It is uh, brand new, at least at the moment, for $13.50. It's released by uh, a company called City Block Films. I'm not very familiar with them. It has an R-rated rating for the film. Um, the extras on the disc are cast bios, trailer, and uh, subtitles in Spanish. And that's it. Uh, so it's a very thin uh, disc, not much on it. Um, the cast bios were very informative, though, I, I must say. It's basically four or five pages of uh, scrolling through where they just talk about uh, the people involved in the film. Um, now, uh, let's discuss um, things about the film itself. But before we do get into that, I will read the back jacket of the film. Uh, this is what it says. When Meg, played by Carla Gugino, finds that she is the object of attraction for two sexy, uninhibited girls at a bar, she finds herself curiosity aroused, despite herself. But tattooed Pat, played by Raya Kilstead, and Alex, played by Anna Thompson, have more planned than just a party, and Meg is central to the action. But as Meg's haunted past begins to be catch up with her, the truth is not how it appears. Who do you trust when the boundaries of fantasy and reality cross over the line? film is directed by a woman named Karen Kruth. So if you're uh, interested in or, or follow uh, genre films directed by female directors, uh, this would definitely be a film to at least put on your radar. Uh, now, uh, before I give my my uh, synopsis, uh, I want to go through a few of the, the people in the cast uh, and behind the film. Kala Chugino, as I stated, um, is a pretty well-known character actress. Uh, she's done a number of films. Uh, right now she's in the public eye because she is the lead um, and has to really carry this film called Gerald's Game that has been released that you can find on Netflix. But uh, she's been on TV and she's been um, on a number of films. She was in uh, San Andreas, playing the uh, ex-wife of um, The Rock in that film. And uh, she was pretty good in that. She was in uh, other films of note. She was in Sin City. Uh, she had a small but pivotal role in that film. Uh, she was in Electra Lux. She was in Woman in Trouble. She was in The Watchmen, a very small piece in that. She was in the horror film The Unborn. Uh, she was in Night of the Museum. Uh, she was in um, some TV movies. Uh, as I said, she was in this movie here, Jaded. So uh, she's she's fairly well-known uh, actress, if not um, huge in the sense that she's like, like a top actress at, at in major films she's a well-known actress anyway um, other people of note that were in this film include uh, the following and um, I'm only listing them because um, at least some of them you, you probably have seen about um, like Richard Bright Ada Turturro is pretty well known uh, actress uh, she was uh, I believe on ER uh, so a lot, a lot of television actors uh, in this 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 movie, um, and Christopher McDonald plays a huge part. 
you may not know the name, but if you Google him, you'll see him, and you go, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Everybody knows him. Um, also, uh, a woman named uh, Donna Mitchell is in it. And uh, the last couple of people I wanted to mention are is Lisa Dent, um, who I believe plays the the lawyer in this, or, or the the DA, the district attorney, and then uh, the two other actresses, Raya Kilstead and Anna Thompson, uh, that are, are of note. Um, the film actually is a curiosity because it is a film that was marketed as a a thriller or a um, psychological erotic thriller, maybe from you know, back in the days of the 90s, it, that, that was the big thing. Um, but it really isn't. It's really more a um, drama with uh, elements of, um, you know, a police procedural in a sense. Um, uh, before I, I give my synopsis again, I just want to talk about that one other person in the film, uh, and that is the director. Uh, her name is uh, Karen Kruth, and she was pretty, uh, you well, not big, but she was used in a lot of films prior to directing this film. Um, she was uh, extras in, as an actress, but she did a lot of production assistant stuff. Um, she worked on films like Quiz Show and uh, Claire and Present Danger, uh, things like that. And then somehow in 1998, she got... Uh, this big break where she was able to uh, direct uh, Jaded. Um, all she did prior to this uh, was a couple of episodes of a TV series called Beyond Belief Fact or Fiction, and then she quit film altogether, moved back to, I believe, uh, the District of Columbia, um, and um, is now a real estate agent in uh, the greater Maryland, Virginia area. Um, and I guess her family was big into real estate work prior, um, and so she basically followed in her footsteps of her family after uh, giving a go in Hollywood, um, to some extent uh, successfully, if not um, as what she probably had originally hoped. Um, so she is now out of film altogether. Uh, basically what we got here is uh, Carla Gugino plays... Uh, a young woman, um, you know, time of her life in her 20s, you know, a little bit wild, a little bit party type, uh, lands up going to a bar, and there's these two women there, um, one that's tattooed and uh, really outgoing, pretty hot, you know, whatever, uh, her name's, the actress is Raya Kilstead, and then uh, a more quiet blonde woman, uh, named uh, the actress is Anna Thompson. She's probably known for a number of uh, uh, exploitation films back in the 70s and 80s. Um, basically, our showy having fun time at the bar, and uh, college Eugenio catches their eye. They invite her over, and the three of them party all night, you know, dancing, that type of stuff. Um, if karaoke was big at the time, that would have been the go-to as well, and people are, um, you know, the bar patrons, mostly men, would, would be watching these women and say, yeah, these three women are hot, uh, you know, they're the, they're the it girls of the night type of thing. Uh, afterwards, uh, the three of them leave the bar together, 
uh, college, Gugina hangs out with her two new friends. They head off to uh, a beach, um, basically skinny dip, and uh, from there there is a violent confrontation where our lead actress, Kawa Gugina's character, is brutally attacked. Um, and what is, happens is, is she says she was raped by these two women that she met at the bar. Um, and so uh, a hor horrendous crime. Um, however, the DA comes in while the uh, woman, um, the woman uh, police, police uh, detective, uh, played by Ada Tuturo, who is uh, from a well-known Hollywood family. Um, the DA comes in and says that the rape is is an issue with that because um, a woman doing rape on a woman at least wasn't written in the law at that time. Uh, so we have a number of things that occur. The first is to find out who the rapists are, to find out what can be charged against them for what their crime is because technically even though it is rape the law doesn't say rape uh, is possible by woman-on-woman -woman violence basically um, and uh, one thing I'll state at the end of the film they say that the laws have been changed since um, and then there's the police procedural as well as uh, the setting up of uh, a criminal case against um, the people who are involved um, so basically you get to you know the A to Z um, police procedural and law procedural going on uh, but also we have our victim trying to get by in the after effects of such a crime against her and then of course we have uh, the stories of the two perpetrators uh, one um, being this tattooed woman who's uh, pretty mean, probably a sociopath, and then her friend, the blonde woman, who is a battered woman, and her side story of um, her life living with this scumbag. Um, so, so there's a lot of plot points that are going on. Uh, the the film is is very uh, much a drama with uh, exploitation elements uh, in involved with it. Um, uh, as well as the typical, you know, stuff that you see on on any TV show for related to um, police procedurals or or um, courtroom procedurals. Um, so if, if you like TV procedurals or courtroom procedurals, this film would definitely uh, fit the bill. So oddly, even with its exploitation elements uh, in in at the very beginning. Uh, this film w would really work a lot more so for people who are big into police uh, shows and uh, courtroom shows on TV. So if you're fans of that, uh, this actually could be a, a film that you could watch with, say, your girlfriend or your wife or your spouse or your, your husband or whatever if they're into that type of uh, television show. Um, for the exploitation or horror elements, or thriller elements, I should say, um, it does have this, especially at the beginning. Um, the, there's flashbacks, and um, well, let me explain. There's, there's basically the first scene is you find uh, Kyle Eugene lying naked on the beach, beaten to a pulp. 
Um, and so obviously there's going to there was a crime that occurred and then when we get flashbacks of the crime uh, when she's talking to the DA and the and the police detective um it's it's pretty brutal uh what we see um and it's it's not comfortable obviously because of of the type of crime so so uh it definitely has elements of thriller and horror and uh, exploitation because of that uh, even though the rest of the film after uh, the crime and the, the relay of the crime to the detective and the DA are more of a police procedural and so forth. Um, now the film is 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 a lot of talk uh, so it is it's more of a talky film rather than an action film by any means. Um, so if you're not into um, police procedural slow development uh, character based development uh, because we didn't learn more about college Eugenia's past and whether or not that's going to be used against her in court to prosecute these people and so forth um, obviously this film is is for a select audience because of that um, now um, is it a good film um, yeah I think it's a solid film um, I, I I was involved with it from beginning to end with no issues. Um, the film uh, wasn't was I expecting necessarily because I was thinking it was going to be more of a thriller rather than a um, drama. So for folks who are listening to this review, at least you know in advance that you should expect a thriller rather than a psychological erotic thriller or anything like that. This is more of a drama. This is actually a drama. So you're going to go in watching this film knowing that it's a drama. Um, on the back of the jacket it says more twists than wild things and that may be the case. There is a, a number of twists that do occur but um, again you could argue that's false advertising because wild things was an erotic thriller and this is not at all. Um, so it, it would have been better to say that this had more twists than whatever police procedural that you're familiar with rather than uh, erotic thriller like Wild Things. Uh, so a little bit, again, there it's the mismarketing of this film. Uh, the f jacket shows uh, the two women protagon uh, antagonists as well as uh, Carla Eugenia on it. So you can gather that um, it's definitely marketing to the 1990s um, psychological erotic thriller crowd when in truth it should have not been uh, marketed as that. Um, now the film is uh, 95 minutes. Uh, doesn't have any extras really as I stated except for the bios for the people behind the film which is um, unfortunate but you know I mean you do get the, the film itself and that's the key is is Carla Cugino even though the rest of the cast is solid um, especially Ada Tertura in the detective role. Um, the film itself is really her film and um, oddly um, is the type of film that would have been used for her to jumpstart and move into A-list um, category as an actress uh, but it, it didn't really jumpstart her career as she probably had hoped um, but it definitely put her on the map and, and she was used in many films and television series since then. Uh, but um, f for Gerald's Game, if 
you watch a film like that and see the acting chops that she has there, you can see her do the same here and jaded when she was in her early to mid 20s rather than uh, her now where she's a 40 something year old woman. Um, nothing really has changed in her acting. It's, it's still pretty solid. Um, and this is really a showpiece for her. Uh, this is her film. Uh, so if you're a big fan of Carla Eugenio or are curious to see uh, a film that she's been in prior to uh, Gerald's Game, uh, Jaded would be a film to definitely go and check out. Once again, it's called J-A-D-E-D. -E um, the director, uh, it's a shame that she did not go on to uh, better things, uh, at least in Hollywood. Obviously, she's done quite well in real estate, uh, but she was a real beauty herself, and I, I could see why she um, had been used as an extra in films and then eventually was able to work behind the, um, in production and so forth before getting the gig for this film here. Since the film obviously didn't, uh, make a lot of money or become a big hit um, her chance of getting us another directing role didn't really pan out uh, but either way uh, she decided to uh, move on and do other things uh, but again once again this film is called Shaded uh, available uh, anywhere on disc and it's pro probably worth checking out especially if you're a fan of uh, college Regina or thrillers in general police procedures and things like that uh, so yeah uh, recommend Okay, this review is actually on a television show. The television show is called Valkyrie Drive Mermaid. It is a show that has 12 episodes. Each episode is about 25 minutes or a half hour episodes of commercials. Um, because it was originally on television in Japan, it is actually an anime. So it is a cartoon. Usually these type of shows are actually created based off of uh, graphic novels known as manga in Japan uh, but this one actually was a curiosity because it was a media franchise that a company called Marvelous um, announced back in March of 2015 and stated that it would include three projects which would have been the television show which is the called Mermaid so uh, Valkyrie Drive Mermaid the entire franchise is Valkyrie Drive and then they were going to have a video game and um, some manga as well, or graphic novels. So it um, came about, oddly, a little backwards rather than the typical anime programming, once again, but usually based off of a graphic novel. Uh, but in this case, it was created all in one, in a sense. Um, now, uh, let me um, read uh, the back jacket of the disc. Um, it's, uh, I have the Blu-ray here and uh, it includes uh, a good many uh, hours of television uh, because again it's 12 episodes uh, so that would be a total of 12 episodes on two discs but it also includes the DVDs as well so it's a combo pack of DVD and Blu-ray um, now uh, this is what it says it says the armed virus also known as the A-virus, plagues a small percent of the female population on Earth, turning girls into living weapons that are activated with a special touch. Afraid of the power they hold, these girls are sent to islands where they either survive or die trying. 
Momori Tokonome is sent to Mermaid Island and thrust into a world where she is paired up with the mysterious and buxom beauty Maria Shikishima. Pressed against a corner, a passionate kiss releases Mamui's power and she becomes a mighty sword that, in Murray's strong grip, is a fearsome weapon. Together they'll face the water, a group that believes in ruling with a firm hand who seek the most powerful weapons. Wanting nothing to do with this organization, Mamori and Murray must find their own way home before the water can claim them for good. The harder they fight, the closer they grow. Can Mamori handle when the battle and failings heat up? Um, so basically what it is to set up the universe uh, that this takes place in is that there's a virus called the A-virus or arm virus. Um, uh, these uh, young women that are affected. So basically anybody that has uh, XX chromosomes that are potential uh, folk who could get the virus. Um, now they're divided into two classes based off of how the virus affects them. There are X-stars and there are liberators. Uh, the X-stars are the ones that can transform into a type of weapon and the liberators are those who are able to uh, wield these weapons. And so usually you have a woman pairing off as um, like a combo dynamic duo in a sense. Um, now the thing is is that when these women are detected with the virus they are sent to these islands. There's, I believe, five islands, uh, man-made islands that have a dome around them, uh, like some sort of force field, where the woman cannot escape. And when they uh, land there, they create their own um, leadership, similar to what we see in uh, the John Carpenter film Escape from New York. And then you have, uh, obviously, uh, conflicts between the cast of... Uh, of various factions on the island. Um, now, Valkyrie drive mermaid, what does that mean? Uh, Valkyrie specifically means uh, warrior, and drive means the ability to turn or wield such weapons. And mermaid is the island that these women are sent to. Now, the island itself is ruled by this a group, I guess they call them the Waters, right? Which I said in the, the back jacket. Um, and uh, there's one man that actually is on the island. He's in his 20s, and uh, he actually has become the leader of uh, the island. And he has a group of folk around him. They live in this fairly impressive uh, um, fortress or castle. And then there's a another group who are more free-willed are independent, uh, is not as structured. And out of those, there are a number of characters that are more uh, peripheral, peripheral meaning they're not aligned, but usually hang out with this uh, more rural, free-willed folk. Yet, um, they are generally aligned with them. Um, now, this, this guy that runs this island, he's fairly... Um, lack of day school in his approach. He does not um, suppress anybody, so he's a fair person, generally. 
Uh, however, he has a number of minions under him who are not as fair and are not as willing to cooperate uh, with uh, those who do not uh, agree with, um, I guess, more of a uh, structured society. Now, um, what, what's the deal with this, this A virus or armed virus? Um, basically, it, it, you could argue it's similar, or you know, we've seen it in many things, it, similar to the X-Men or superheroes, where you have folks that are basically become mute, mutants in a sense and have uh, very much a strong, powerful ability that makes them, quote-unquote, dangerous to the general population who do not have these uh, extraordinary supernatural type powers. So that's why they are taken away by the government and placed on these islands. Uh, the government has this organization, and it's like at this point in time, I guess it's like a world government. Um, so this world government has an organization or an arm of their the government called the AAA organization, which is basically the folks that are the onlookers of the five uh, man-made islands that these with the virus live on. And after a certain period of time, they can be released or granted freedom if they turn out to be fair and um, decent human beings that aren't necessarily a threat to society. So, uh, this is most certainly uh, a future science fiction type uh, story. To set up the actual series itself, uh, episode one is simply called I Am I'm Getting Deflowered, is what it's called, or Watashi Chirasaramasu, uh, if you want to uh, Japanese the title. Um, so the, uh, the, the lead character, Mamori Tokonomi, She's a young girl uh, diagnosed with this unfortunate um, virus, uh, and uh, she is uh, then uh, picked up by government agents, removed from her family, and sent to this island. Um, when she gets there, she is immediately um, harassed by uh, two warrior women that happen to be part of, uh, I guess, the, the Warters. Uh, W-O-R-T-E-R-S uh, with the O um, having the two dots over it, so similar to uh, what you would see in the Dutch language or, or uh, some of the um, Central or Western European or even actually Southern, Southeastern European languages. Um, and uh, what happens is as she's about to be, um, I guess, arrested by these warrior women, um, another woman, Mar Marie Shikishima, um, is transported there as well. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how it happens, but there is, uh, since this is the future, there is some sort of, um, um, I don't know, like Star Trek, beam me up type thing or whatever. And um, what happens is Marie Shikishima appears as well uh, uh, next I guess the next uh, individual caught with the virus that is sent to the island and she lands up right in the middle of this battle where Mamori is about to fight two of these warrior women and Marie joins up with uh, Mamori and the two of them um, basically t 
take out the warrior woman. Um, the thing is, is that this this episode, or, or I should say, this entire series, is curious in the sense that it's very violent, um, but no one really dies uh, when when the warrior woman fight each other and there's like a big battle. It's it's pretty intense and pretty shocking, but uh, at the end, uh, no one actually is killed. Uh, they're usually left unconscious or captured or, or some other note, but, but there is no actual deaths throughout the show. So that's one thing that um, I felt was interesting and actually uh, I felt was, was pretty, pretty good because there's a lot of gray between all the sides in this uh, show so that quote-unquote evil people aren't true evil and the good aren't necessarily true good they some of them are scoundrels you know thieves and whatnot so uh there is a little gray uh both in the good and the bad now uh now that marie and um uh her her, her new friend memory uh join up they are um eventually find this rural group of folk after they escape um uh, the the waters because uh, eventually they're, they're being on this island unaware not sh knowing what to do or where to go they get picked up brought to uh, the fortress and um, are forced to uh, uh, basically I guess agree to for this to this I guess dictatorship in a sense or structured living I guess uh, but they eventually escape and they meet up with um, this other group that I guess is more of like a hippie type community or really not that but more of like um, a jack of all trades type of people they're just hippies there's technocrats they're whatever they're but they all live together in a fairly peaceful way uh, and uh, extricate themselves from destructive society that the waters decide to uh, implement on the island. Now, uh, while all this is going on, obviously the AAA organization run by the government is watching this, and eventually there's a ripple in the television show where they get involved as well. Also, there's a big twist with uh, the one male character on the island, and we find out uh, more about him as well. Um, now, there there is a couple of interesting characters um, that make this show um, stand out. If you like these science fiction anime, uh, for example, there are two folks called Lady J and Rain. Uh, they're kind of like biker leather uh, wearing chicks that are a pretty tough ass. Um, and they're pretty cool. They're probably the best characters in the show. Uh, there is another girl um, entitled um, My Fang Sakura, and she dresses more like a cowgirl, and she is like the scavenger that steals everything to supply um, um, this, this rural group that lives away from the waters. Um, and she's one of the better characters as well. And then, of course, uh, out of our two leads, uh, Marie 
and Mamori, even though Mamori is technically the lead character, Marie is actually a pretty damn good character, and she's actually one of my favorite characters as well. Um, and then the governor, uh, which is the guy that, that rules um, the island, he's actually pretty good as well. And then later in the in the, the series, there's a new villain that comes that's related to the government, and uh, she's pretty damn good as well. So there, there's a lot of um, uh, pretty cool characters here that um, stand out. Each character is well-developed and is very much uh, unique and distinct. Uh, so um, that's one aspect where you know a lot of these ensemble casts, whether it's real television or animation television, can really jumble up here. Everybody is pretty distinct, and uh, each looks different as well. So they have blonde hair, pink-haired, whatever characters, and different shapes of faces and whatever. So um, the animation is pretty good as well. I felt um, now. Um, who who's this this for this show well if you like science fiction this is pretty good if you like anime this is pretty good uh this is not a comedic show at all so uh you don't have to worry about the hijinks that are in a lot of anime that can kind of um uh i don't want to say ruin but don't fit the audience that uh most genre fans would would really be into uh so this this is a serious show in that sense However, it is a drive-in grindhouse movie experience or television experience because um, some of the things are ridiculous, obviously, when people can turn into living weapons that look like swords or guns or, in some cases, motorcycles. Um, that, obviously, is a bit far-fetched um, and, and, I guess, um, uh, grindhouse-like. So that's definitely something to consider. Um, also, there's abundant amount of um, nudity in this, this show um, because um, what happens is, is obviously during the transformations, uh, a lot of these folks are, are clothless, um, and um, there is a number of situations that are adult-oriented, and when I say adult-oriented, I just mean R-rated. This is not... Uh, anything that anybody would have to worry about. It's it's similar to anything you would see on Game of Thrones or HBO's The Leftovers or HBO's The Deuce. So the sexual situations and the nudity would be anything you would see on an HBO original television series. But you should notice in advance because obviously if that's not your thing, if you're not into um, midnight movie grindhouse experience, meaning crazy storyline where because you know woman turning into weapons is crazy uh and nudity and um, sexual situations as well as of course uh the over-the-top violence uh then this show may not be for you however um uh for an anime series it's fairly strong for sure um i actually um watched the first episode and then just binged it in two nights um, a lot of times for anime, um, if the first or second episode don't work for me, I will usually put it down and go back to it at another time. And a lot of times that's because it's more tongue-in-cheek with silly comedy routines that just ruin it for me. Uh, this fortunately did not have any of that. This is pure um, action and midnight movie um, storyline 
So, um, yeah, it, it works really good. Um, if you're into um, a television show that is unique, because um, it does ha have its unique ideas, even if it takes ideas from various other um, stories. Obviously, like I said, it has a, a similar to the X-Men with the, the powers. Uh, obviously, it ha has a dome. So it could be anything from like the Truman Show to uh, Stephen King's Under the Dome. It has that type of thing. And, of course, the government uh, conspiracy. Um, and then um, a future society and, and whatnot. Um, now, uh, where can you watch this? Um, I honestly don't know if this is streaming on VOD. Uh, it might stream on VOD, but I am not sure. I know Netflix and uh, Crunchyroll and various other shows. Funimation is another one that are all um, internet-based television programming that have a lot of anime, uh, but this one may not. I'm not really sure. Um, but I actually bought the disc. Um, again, it comes with four DVD, four discs, two DVDs, and two Blu-rays, so you can um, watch it on either. Um, the series I was able to purchase on Amazon. Uh, at the moment, it's actually $43.49. I believe I bought it on sale for $39.99. Um, and I was actually, um, have to say that it was a good purchase because it is a pretty good show and it could be a show that I could revisit in a year or two. Um, now, uh, other details on the discs, uh, of note, um, so let's go through it, uh, here. It's five hours, so the show is five hours when you include all 12 episodes, so that's not too bad because you're basically getting two to three movies in length, so if you go an hour and a half per movie... Uh, hour and 45 minutes per movie, you know, so that's, for, for 40 bucks you get three full-length movies if, if you want to go um, and compare it to movie-length pricing for DVDs or Blu-rays. Um, now, it doesn't have extras. Um, it has episode commentary, um, uh, and then it has trailers and the opening and uh, exit credits um, without the, the words, because if you don't know about Japanese anime, um, the credits, both the intro and the, the exit, uh, have usually really catchy songs, and, and this show does as well, and um, they are almost like music videos, the, the, the credits. Um, but uh, the, the commentary, I actually listened to the commentary, and um, it was pretty damn good. Uh, it's basically this one guy who is the the script manager, he basically um, takes the Japanese original script and converts it into English language script. Um, and then we have three women who are um, voice actresses of some of the characters. And uh, the four of them uh, talk, uh, as you would expect, through uh, you know an episode of, of the show and talk about their experience with the show. Um, they do get a kick out of the show because um, the characters that they play are very, um, I guess, buxomly drawn, and they are also, um, um, uh, I guess, um, crazy characters too. Uh, like I said, there was the, the character that dresses as a cowgirl and goes around um, 
stealing things, and then of course the the biker chicks and whatnot. And so these characters uh, are voiced by these women, and um, they get a, a hoot out of playing the characters and uh, how the characters look on screen. Um, so. Uh, uh, it's a really fun commentary, and uh, it was really interesting commentary as well, um, because of um, the nature of the show being uh, over-the-top, outrageous um, science fiction uh, midnight movie combo. So once again, the show is called Felkry Drive Mermaid, and it is uh, originally uh, in Japan, 2015, came to the United States in 2017, uh, everywhere, everywhere meaning. Um, uh, Blu-ray, anyway, and, and DVD, um, and it is uh, easily available uh, to buy, um, and you can um, probably find it streaming somewhere if you really do search. Um, usually, those those streaming sites are you pay, but you know it's a monthly payment like uh, Netflix and whatnot. But uh, um, if you like uh, over-the-top crazy enemies or over-the-top crazy science fiction and midnight movie combinations that have a lot of uh, uh, violence and gratuitous nudity and um, crazy uh, scenarios. This is definitely for you. And if you're that part of uh, the genre audience, this is a high recommend for sure. The film I'm uh, talking about now is actually a film called The Dark. Pretty generic title, um, and obviously not helpful in any way. But it's a film from 1979, and it actually has a pretty solid cast. Uh, this is a really, really big cast for the day. Uh, William Devane, probably best known for film uh, television shows like um, Knott's Landing. Uh, he actually uh, is the star. Everybody knows William Devane. If you see a picture of William Devane, uh, you'll know exactly who he is. Uh, Kathy Lee Crosby is also in this film. She's the lead actress. Now, everybody, if they look up her name, they will exactly know who she is as well. She was huge back in the day. She was a former um, professional tennis player. Uh, she was actually a co-host of a television show that was very popular back in the day called That's Incredible. Um, she was she, she was pretty close to being as A-list as you can get uh, for television, uh, especially back um, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, other folks of note that are in this film, before we get into what it's about, uh, the film also stars Richard Jackal who actually was an Academy Award-nominated actor. Uh, he is another person, if you are f familiar with 1950s, 60s, and 70s film and television, you know who he is. Uh, Keenan Wynn, uh, he's had major roles in a lot of uh, stuff, including genre films such as Laser Blast and the original Piranha. And then another person of note, is the, the actress Vivian Blaine, uh, who at this point was uh, an older woman, but uh, she was a huge back in the day, um, where, you know, working with people like Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra. Um, she actually plays 
an elderly woman that lives um, in, um, well, either way, I won't want to spoil it, but um, so that, that's the, the, the cast. So the cast is actually a solid cast. We're talking um, A-listers, uh, if not for cinema, at least for television, and uh, they were brought together for this film called The Dark. Uh, the film uh, is directed by a guy named John uh, Bud Cardos, and uh, he he was a well-known uh, genre director, um, not necessarily uh, prolific in the sense that uh, a lot of classics or anything, but, but he did a lot of pretty damn good genre films, uh, Hell's Angels on Wheels, Psych Out, uh, Blood of Dracula's Castle, uh, The Female Bunch, uh, Kingdom of Spiders, Mutant, and uh, some of these films you may have heard of. Uh, Kingdom of Spiders was a William Shatner film. Um, that's a, uh, just got a re-release on Blu-ray as well. Mutant uh, just got a re-release on Blu-ray too, and, and that actually is a solid zombie flick, um, and so forth. So uh, he, he's done a number of uh, fairly, um, fairly important films, uh, whether he directed, starred in, or uh, wrote. Uh, he, he's done a number of films. Uh, this film here, um, The Dark, he actually is the director. Um, now, uh, the film was uh, written by a guy named Stanford Whitmore, and he acted TV screenwriting and uh, movies for TV. Um, he actually did um, uh, The Fugitive, the, the original TV movie of The Fugitive. Uh, so uh, he he was uh, had a pretty good career going by this time when he wrote this film. Uh, the film was a bizarre film because originally it was supposed to be a serial killer film, and uh, you know so uh, similar to a slasher. But at the time, 1979, even though slashes hit it big with films like uh, Black Christmas and Halloween, which came out in 1978, uh, at the same time as we know, space stuff was was becoming really big as well. Uh, you know, Star Wars, Close Encounters, uh, the Roger Moore, uh, James Bond film, For Your Eyes Only, uh, no, uh, not For Your Eyes Only, I'm sorry, uh, for uh, Moonraker, um, and on and on. Um, the UFO Incident was a TV film that was, was big at the time. Space stuff was, was hip as much as, if not more so, than horror slashers. Uh, and um, so what happened was this film was rewritten and additional scenes were added to the script to make it a film about uh, possibly an alien invasion. Um, so the murders that do occur in this film by the quote-unquote slasher actually a change to be done by what may be an alien being instead. So uh, let me read the back jacket of the, the film. Uh, this actually comes out brand new Blu-ray release within the past couple of months by Code Red. Uh, the film, uh, Code Red is an interesting thing because the, they used to actually have films released at uh, basically stores such as Best Buy and whatnot. Um, but they don't use Amazon. You have to usually get their films either from um, Diabolic dvd.com or you get it through um, the web websites ronixfilm.com 
or Grindhouse Film is another website. Uh, but they do have a pretty good distribution that way. And this film is readily available on any of those sites. Uh, I would recommend checking out um, either the ones that I, I've, I've actually done business with, which is uh, RoninFlix.com or DiabolicDVD.com, and you can find it there. Um, but this is what it says. It says, An urban nightmare not of the world is born in this 1970s horror fan favorite. Writer William Devane takes a personal interest in a series of baffling, shocking murders in Los Angeles, and evidence suggests the culprit may not be human. Every night, the mangler stalks the streets, attacking and mutilating a random victim. Also on the trio are TV reporter Kathy Lee Crosby and police detective Richard Jackal. But the truth behind the murders is far more strange and horrifying than they could ever have imagined. Casey Kasem, Vivian Blaine, and Philip Michael Thomas also star in this much-loved monster sci-fi movie Mutation, directed by John Bud Cardos and produced by Ego Cantor and Dick Clark. Yes, right, Dick Clark, the guy that does American Bandstand. Uh, now presented for the first time in HD from the original camera negative. Special features on the disc include brand new 2017 2K scan from the original camera negative. Auto commentary with producer Ego Cantor and director John Bud Cardos. On-camera interview with composer Roger Calloway. Vintage interview with John Barcados, isolated music score, and the original trailer. Um, now, uh, some folks that have reviewed this film have stated that it gets uh, talky at points, uh, which I could see that being the case. Uh, but I feel that a lot of that talky stuff is fairly good character development. Uh, where we get to meet the characters and and um, learn more about them, and also I feel they are um, good to the plot because they actually uh, separate the what I consider fantastic set pieces uh, throughout the film. So the set pieces are scattered about the film with uh, a lot of character development in between, and I think it works quite well. For me, anyway. Um, this film is actually a pretty damn good surprise because I wasn't expecting much. Uh, though I like William Devane, I used to watch him a lot back in the day. Same with Kathy Lee Crosby. Um, I, I wasn't expecting much from the film because, again, I had heard a couple of things. One, that this film was a mishmash that was put together uh, with a big change to the plot, i.e., the murderer serial killer is actually a space creature so I felt okay it's probably going to be a jumbled mess and two uh, even though I know Kathy Lee Crosby and William Devane and have been fans of them especially when I was younger uh, I had never heard of the film and did not know it even existed which usually means that okay maybe it wasn't an important film and again a lot of B films aren't important anyway um, but as a B film horror film. This film is a solid rock on film for sure. Uh, the presentation uh, is really good. Uh, Code Red uh, hit a home run with this one. This is one of their better 
releases I would definitely recommend it if people ask me out of all the Code Red films that have been released give me a handful of them this one would be one of them and oddly a mutant directed by the same guy would be another um, so I, I would I would definitely uh, recommend it again it's hard to find because uh, you can't get it on Amazon uh, so when I say hard I mean you can't just use Amazon Prime it, but it's actually very easy to get because you can just go to Diabolic DVD or RoninFlix.com um, now uh, the the film first off this film has two of the most incredible uh, murders ever or set design murders ever uh, in a horror film that I've seen um, if this was a brand new film and uh, I was doing uh, our end of year list on the other podcast I do dark discussions podcast I would put the two kills as the you know the kill of the year um, for sure these kills were great I won't even explain what they are because you should see it um, now uh, basically uh, the story itself um, works even though it's a mismatch because they added the alien aspect after the fact um, I feel because of what happens at the end is incredible uh, the ending set piece when all hell breaks loose and the police and everybody are trying to take out this this creature in this abandoned uh, warehouse area um, is one of the better set pieces of this film um, and made me really uh, say that this film is a solid film um, now the mystery trying to find out who the mangler is uh, basically it's a standard uh, police procedure in a sense but instead of uh, necessarily the, just a police we do have this guy that's a writer um, that's going off trying to do his own detective work that's played by William De Devane and then we have uh, the news reporter um, and her boss played by Kathleen Crosby and Keenan Wynn uh, so you have a multiple group of characters searching you for the same thing and um, eventually they, they all kind of merge together link up and uh, yeah you can say that they're um, gonna join forces obviously you can tell that's what's gonna happen anyway um, and sure enough uh, we, we, we get that there's some scenes that are really intense because there's a character one character I won't say who it is that looks like he's gonna he, he or she is gonna get taken out and it's only a, uh, a red herring and um, I felt it worked really well um, and then when the character survives and nothing happens you're actually relieved um, and so it was it was solid definitely solid how they they um, did these major set pieces within the film and and with the uh, character development and the detective work in between these set piece scenes you get a sigh of relief you can take a breath and um, I felt it worked well so some of the complaints that I did read on some of these horror blog websites about the film being slow at points I would I would digress and disagree with their their uh, opinion but again that's you know that's just me I, I love um, drama in my films since most of the films I used to watch prior to really getting to these uh, grindhouse midnight movies were drama films uh, films that that were basically character studies or suburban life type films and um, so 
for me it works really good and uh, that's my favorite type of film anyway um, in here you get those dramatics uh, scenes between the set pieces um, now the alien or serial killer they is obviously he's dubbed the mangler or she's dubbed the mangler and uh, he is pretty vicious what, what he, he's, he uh, uh, burns bodies alive he takes people's heads off uh, rips open their stomachs you know things like that so when, when the police find uh, the victims um, they're pretty graphic and that's why uh, he becomes dubbed the mangler by the press and so people are saying you know there's a big bigger city that it takes place in uh, people should not go out at night be careful if you do go out at night go in groups you know the, the same things you, you know I mean it, you know what it was it was you could tell that maybe they were thinking of um, the actual murders in New York City of the son of Sam where the hysteria of um, of, of you know the, the whole crime was was I guess like a cloud over the entire city or, or the the neighborhoods within New York City that here the screenwriter could you could tell that he kind of maybe based some of the the feeling of the neighborhood and the police and all that off of the son of Sam and again this is just complete conjecture based off of my own um, uh, watching of, of various uh, documentaries or whatnot um, and how people acted during those type of things uh, another one would be the Zodiac Killer um, here this film kinda uses that and my reason I think it's uh, like the Son of Sam is because it came out during the same time the Son of Sam uh, murders were occurring but again that's just complete conjecture but the the uh, feeling of the cloud of, of a murderer out there um, you could tell that that at least that's what the screenwriter was trying to say um, now uh, the audio commentary is actually pretty good because it really goes into and again it's by the producer one of the producers anyway not Dick Clark obviously but uh, Ego Cantor and uh, the director John Bud Cardos really talk about um, the the changes that were made uh, with the script and why um, and and how space alien and all that stuff was even usurped uh, horror and slashers at that time um, in the late 70s uh, and how it affected this film and to make it more marketable changing it to a space creature um, and again I this all really occurred in pre-production because the post-production stuff um, like the whole end scene is is exactly this space alien fight so it it obviously um, certain scenes I mean you could see they added some digital effects uh, digital not digital as in computer effects but special effects anyway to certain scenes to make it more space like or, or alien creature like but the ending was most certainly shot after the script was finalized so if you want to learn a lot about how a film changes 
from original intent to its final um, product. Uh, you can get learn a lot from uh, the the audio commentary by the producer and the director. Um, speaking of uh, uh, other things that were note of this this release, uh, the composer Roger Kellaway, um, he actually has like I said uh, has a um, interview. And um, his is pretty interesting, too, um, because he talks about uh, this film, how he scored it and whatnot, as well as um, some of the other things he had done prior to get the job. And I felt that was pretty interesting, if not essential to uh, the film. Um, so would I recommend this film? I most certainly would. I, I felt it was a solid horror film with uh, science fiction elements. That was a surprise to me. I had never heard of the film and was surprised when it uh, popped up on Blu-ray a couple of months ago. I immediately picked it up, and I watched it uh, about two weeks ago, and, yeah, it, it really really was a rock-solid film and a high recommend by me. Uh, again, you can get it at roninflix.com, or you can get it at diabolicdvd.com, among other places. I know David Koning, uh, one of my uh, good Facebook buddies, who I would most certainly hang out with a lot if he lived closer to me, um, mentions another company too. I think I, I, it it's begins with Grindhouse, but I, I don't know the, the website. And he, he says they're rock solid a company that you should check out too. And, and they would have this disc as well. Um, so uh, once again, the film's called The Dark, starring William Devane, Kathleen Lee Crosby. I recommend. All right, thank you once again for listening to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 7. Uh, this volume actually had a pretty good group of films. Uh, all of them are readily available at various locations. So if anybody wants to check them out, they should. Some may actually be on VOD or free on such sites as Hulu, Netflix, or whatnot, but I am not sure. Always check those sites before you do anything else. However, if you're specifically looking for the Blu-ray or DVD boutique disc, they are all definitely available uh, at various locations. Uh, I am, once again, your host, Philip, uh, co-host of the Dark Discussions podcast. Uh, I do appreciate any emails you have for the Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Uh, you can reach me at darkdiscussions at AOL.com. Simple as that. So very easy to remember. I will uh, accept uh, all emails and uh, hear your feedback. If uh, they are not what we would say spammy or trolling, I will definitely read them out on the next episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 8. Uh, I am still uh, deciding what type of films and which films I will do for that, but uh, hopefully that will be out within the next 30 days, so keep on looking. And you can find us either under Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, wherever podcasts are found, or you can go to Dark Discussions, wherever podcasts are found, and we are in that stream as well or RSS feed as well. 
so uh, once again, thank you for listening, and catch you next time. Do you like things that go bump in the night, bump, bump in the night, bump, bump in the night, bump, night, night? Are you trying to say something that's successful at creating an astral man? Exactly. Really think that I'm killing in two weeks. Bloody.